Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Carter. Our desire is to help you wrestle with and reflect on the big questions in life. Like, why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? We lean on the best of the Christian intellectual tradition and elevate the thought leaders, both ancient and modern, who best grapple with these questions and direct our hearts towards the author of the answers. In this, our second podcast season, we'll be releasing groups of episodes thematically to allow for a deeper exploration of topics that we believe are both timely and timeless. Our first series of conversations will consider life after a global pandemic. With so many people across the world having experienced real loss, heartache, and isolation, how can we begin to take steps forward as a people called to hope, joy, and love? These are the kinds of questions we'll grapple with together, and we're so thankful that you're here. All of our episodes have been previously recorded and edited for length and clarity, but to listen to any of our conversations in full, just visit our website at ttf.org. Now, whether you're pouring yourself a cup of coffee and settling into a comfortable nook, hopping on the treadmill, or just starting your commute, we invite you to join us in one of the great joys of life, a conversation among friends on the things that matter most. With that, here's today's conversation. The author Annie Dillard once said that how you spend your days is, of course, how you spend your life. And increasingly, it seems that we are spending our days and our lives online. Just a little over a generation ago, there really wasn't much of a web to surf. But today, we spend more than half of our waking hours online, even as time spent on traditional media forms, such as television, continues to increase. Teenagers, at least 84% of them, own a smartphone. And by some estimates, today's adults will spend 44 years of their life online. Not surprisingly, such huge changes in how we spend our time and direct our attention has a deep impact. And some of those impacts tend to be unforeseen and perhaps even unwanted. For example, time online is correlated with an increase in depression, mental health issues, suicidal ideation, and sleep deprivation. It also affects our relationships. More than two thirds of teens and young adults argue that electronic devices keep them from having real conversations and that they're more distracted as a result. More than a quarter, three quarters of us believe that being a teenager today is a lot more complicated and the main reason given is social media. Of course, this is not to say that technological advances haven't brought incredible blessings and benefits. After all, we're, we're meeting on Zoom and we will soon be re-entering embodied life because of incredible advances made in a vaccine and procured essentially in about a year's time. So there's so much to be thankful for because of technology. But it does reflect the fact that our technological tools have powerfully changed our lives and in ways that we may have not fully anticipated or knowingly signed up for, which raises the question, how do we master and control our technological tools rather than allowing them to master us? What's the proper place of technology in our lives? And how do we cultivate the mind, the habits of the mind, body, and spirit that enable us to lead a tech-wise 
and abundant life? Obviously, these are big questions, but it's hard to imagine a duo who has wrestled with them with more insight, grace, gr creativity, or good humor than our guest today. A father-daughter duo who literally wrote the book on the subject, My TechWise Life, Andy and Amy Crouch. Andy is a best-selling author, sought-after speaker, and musician whose works have helped a generation understand culture, creativity, and the gospel. In addition to uh, writing widely for Time, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and many other publications, he's also written the books Culture Making, Playing God, Strong and Weak, The TechWise Family, and of course, his latest co-written with his daughter, Amy, which I just mentioned, My TechWise Life. Amy Crouch is a student at Cornell University where she studies linguistics and English when she is not busy co-writing books with her father. This is actually the second one that she's collaborated with Andy on, not only My TechWise Life, but also The TechWise Family. So Andy and Amy, welcome. So Thank you. It's great to have you on. So I have to ask, this is the second collaboration that you, the two of you have done <laughs> on technology books. And Andy, I understand another book on technology is forthcoming. This is clearly a topic that is very important to both of you. So what led you to write these two books? <laughs> Do you want to start, Amy? You have the most sure. more recent one. Well, I'm happy to go ahead, but I will say that writing my book really did depend on dad's book before me, because in some ways it felt like uh, dad's book started a conversation that really needed to keep going. So dad wrote this book um, about uh, technology really from the perspective of a dad, I would say, um, and for <laughs> parents, although a few kids have, have read it. And Your kids have been made to read it. We might actually <laughs> perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. Um, but you know, and that is so necessary, right? Like parents need these tools. But at the same time, I think both dad and I really felt we need to be talking to the kids too, and also hearing from kids. I definitely, in my own life, I've seen how my generation were, you know, we don't really fit the stereotype of the sort of screen addicted zombies. Yes, devices are a very big part of our lives, but I really see my friends and peers asking questions, feeling discontented with all of the expectations and the mediation of our devices, but just not quite certain of how to move forward and how to live healthily with screens, with technology. And so I would say I really wrote my book because, or our book, I should say, because I wanted to be speaking to people my age saying, hey, I I know what it is like to be in this very screen mediated world. Um, and I think that there's a better way than the kind of default that my, my iPhone or my laptop wants from me. And so I think this is really about um, saying there's another way to live. I might add, Sri, that uh, I think the very initial impetus for my first book, The TechWise Family, was uh, first of all, just uh, realizing there was, there was, as Amy said, among her peers, but also among people who were beginning to parent and were uh, raising families, a lot of confusion, uh, fear, discontent, um, not just with what was happening for our kids, but what was happening for us as well. And that was actually true in my own life. I want to uh, emphasize 
The Techwise family kind of comes from the point of view of the end of a journey that we were on as a family that I was on with my wife, Catherine. And at the beginning of that journey, I don't think I was actually very thoughtful at all about what technology was uh, giving and taking away maybe in my life and my relationships. But uh, parenting does force some of these issues. And this book is not just for parents or families even because it's kind of just about the human <laughs> dilemmas we're facing. Uh, but it does, it does force you to start realizing what's going on in a lo little more intense way. And, um, and by the end of that journey, which is when I started to write the book, when our kids were old enough that we were pretty sure we hadn't totally messed them up <laughs> because you cannot write it, it. I don't know anyone who could write a parenting book like when you have 12 or 13 year olds, but when you have 17 and 20 year olds, you think, okay, we didn't completely mess this up. We're actually seeing some fruits of this. And there actually were some choices we had to make along the way that have led to really good news for uh, our family and for other people who have tried these things. So uh, it's based both on the discontent that's out there, but also on our sense that there's actually very good news available and um, real life available in the midst of a technological world. Yeah, now I, I noticed that with both TechWise Family and my TechWise Life, you you worked with Barna. And so Andy, I'm I'm curious, you know, Barna of course measures and it focuses really on, on people of faith, on Christians, uh, their attitudes, assumptions, as well as behaviors. Did you see any significant difference in the way Christians um, either approach or use uh, social media and technologies from say the broader public? We've done two rounds of specific research for the two books, and Barna's done a lot of other research. And the research we did uh, definitely included people of all faiths, none. Uh, but, but as you say, Barna is particularly interested in how people approach faith in the US and around the world. Uh, I mean, the basic answer is there's, there's very little difference. There, there's little differences at the margins uh, in the latest research about teenagers, teenagers from Christian homes. I don't know, Amy, you may be able to fill this in a little more with a little more detail, but uh, their parents were slightly more likely to be involved in helping them think about uh, kind of limits for devices, which I think is a good thing, although I don't think limits are going to get us all the way there with any technology. I think parenting by limits is like the least fun kind of parenting, and I don't really like to do it, and I don't think it's the way we should build our parenting. But really, on most measures, honestly, um, there's not a lot of evidence in the data uh, about the difference that faith might make in, in how people currently approach this. You know, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, please, Amy. Yeah, I just summarized the data as Christians are more likely to say that they've, say, had conversations with their family about things like technology and also even other issues like patience and self-control. Um, but when it comes to actual behavior and when you look at, you know, whether kids have TVs in their bedroom, how often they're using devices when they get a tablet or a computer, there are not very many differences that we see in practice between Christians and non-Christians. I'm curious why you think that is, and Andy, I'll direct this to you first, because you know, you've written and spoken quite a bit about the spiritual disciplines, and of course, the mm. uh, spiritual disciplines tend to focus on how we tend to use our time, our attention, and our resources, and um, you know, new technologies and social media are, of course, incredibly effective at using up our time and scattering our attention. Um, and presumably, you know, one of the more um, spiritually disciplined people would be 
perhaps rather uh, intrigued by that, aware of it, attuned to it. So yeah. what do you think accounts for the fact that we that look so much like our neighbors? Uh, I think there's a couple layers. Uh, the first is simply um, the, the whole wave of modern technology, uh, unlike in certain important respects, the tools that human beings have used throughout the whole history of, of humanity had a commercial imperative. And so they were sold to us with very particular promises. They didn't just evolve out of a community's need for something. They actually were, there, there are interests uh, uh, inviting us to join a platform or inviting us to buy a certain device. And of course, these things are sold. I mean, there's basically two things that techno all technological devices are sold with. Uh, now you'll be able to do dot, 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 something you weren't able to do before. And now you won't, uh, you'll, you'll no longer have to do something. In other words, your life will get uh, less burdened in some way and more capacious in other ways. And there is a very long history of uh, human beings when something is presented to them and they're told that it will be good to eat and it will make them wise and will relieve them of certain burdens and open up new possibilities. Um, that goes back to very early in the human story, at least as told by the book of Genesis. And we don't have a great track record of resisting those promises. So, you know, the first thing is simply we, we invite these devices into our lives um, because we think they're going to make our lives easier and we want our lives to be easier. The second layer, I would say, Sheree, that maybe gets maybe slightly more specifically to the interesting fact that there doesn't seem to be a lot of difference in how Christians approach this from others is another thing interesting. It's interesting that it's sold this way at the same time as these are sold as things of great benefit is the idea that these things are neutral, that technology is neutral, um, that it's neither good nor bad. I, I hear this a lot and it's a it's an understandable thought that people have or an understandable way they approach it. Well, you know, the smartphone can be used for bad uses or, or good uses, but it's basically neutral. Uh, and maybe I'll couple with that a, something even more specific to evangelical Christians in the United States, if I can pick on my own people here, <laughs> which is that we tend to be very attentive to the message delivered by media and culture, but not as attentive to the form and the kind of practices uh, that are enabled or, or enhanced or diminished by a certain kind of culture. So, so the idea arises that, well, this is just kind of neutral. And as long as you use it for good things, it'll be fine. Um, I think that's actually deeply wrong because I actually think the basic Christian conviction about any new cultural innovation should be that, that culture has the potential to be very good, not just neutral. The human activity of discovering the possibilities of the world and, uh, and creating things based on those possibilities is, is, is very good. But uh, we also have these categories of idolatry, injustice, the abuse of creation, the misusing of creation. And so I don't think there's anything in culture that's neutral. I think it is either turns out to be very good for us or, or quite damaging. And I think we often haven't been aware of those stakes as we've added layers of technology to our mm -hmm. lives and especially to our yeah. homes, our schools and our churches, the most formative environments for human beings. Yes. And, you know, I would follow up on that idea of technology being branded or sort of the messaging being that technology is neutral. I think the other thing that we find is that the belief is that technology is necessary. I think yeah. it has gotten to the point where yeah, it yeah, seems totally. so impossible to live a life without 
our devices and without our screens, um, that it almost feels like there's no choice. And, you know, I can't read the minds of of every Christian uh, or every non-Christian who's pondering technology, but I would say that a lot of people who don't set any kinds of disciplines about technology, I would say that a lot of people just cannot even imagine a way that you could make choices about technology because this world of screens has so dictated to us how we are supposed to mediate our relationships, um, our, our communities and our sort of personal private life. And so I think that it's gotten to the point where we almost need to be reminded that we do have a choice and that these devices are not these, you know, sort of eternal and in, you know, impossible to change parts of life. But again, an aspect of our lives that should be treated with um, discipline and with a desire for patience and wisdom. Boy, there's so much to unpack there. Let me um, let me ask Andy just about one uh, point you made, which was essentially that about technologies not being neutral. And you know, of course, there have been several thinkers who have said who have made that point. You know, I'm thinking of Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman, who essentially argued yeah. that you know the form in which we get a message very much affects you know what the content of that message will be. You you can't do philosophy by smoke signal. Um, huh. you know, there have been yeah. people who've also, it's also very easy to do sexting by Snapchat, you know, just <laughs> certain, you know, media predispose themselves towards certain kind of content. And yeah. having written the book, Culture Making, about the importance of creating and what we make kind of reflecting, um, you know, both God's image as a maker, but also uh, kind of remaking our world. How do you see our, our culture making being affected Mm. by our increasing immersion within certain forms of social media? Hmm. Well, that's a profound question. So all culture comes with meaning attached. Um, There's no, uh, and this is another way in which no culture is made uh, in a meaning vacuum in, in a kind of neutral way. And to step back just for a moment, I think the, the basic driving story of the last hundred years of technology, and this is really in, in a way quite recent in, in the human story, is that easy is good and easy should be everywhere. So I, I think the basic promise of technology is easy everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this, it, I mean, this goes back to very early devices that we introduced into our homes, the labor-saving devices, or even something like the move, this is from another philosopher, Albert Borgman, from the furnace or the hearth to the, uh, or sorry, the fireplace or the hearth to the furnace and the thermostat. Uh, we used to have to tend fires. We had to pay attention to the fire. The fire was at the center of the home. Over time, most of us who live in cold climates uh, have a furnace that sits in some neglected corner of the house and just easily provides what we want. It doesn't require anything of us. And technology says you should make that trade whenever you come upon it. Whenever you get a chance to reduce friction, reduce burdens, that will be good for you, your household, your quality of life. So this then comes to the question of how we arrange our social worlds. Like, how should I communicate what matters to me to the people who matter to me? 
And social media says, we're going to make it so low friction to uh, disseminate your thoughts, your ideas, pictures of your puppy, uh, you know, news about your family. Um, and we're going to make it extremely easy to connect to people that either you have some connection to already, or, or maybe you can actually experience something that only celebrities experienced in the past, which is a kind of mediated fame where lots of people know you without actually knowing you. And this is going to be great. <laughs> well, it's not all bad. And I think there are ways to use this redemptively, but the more we use social media like a device that just effortlessly amplifies our presence and message in the world, I think the less healthy it is. And we could have taken a different turn at the very beginning of the history of technology, um, Sheree, I think. And I think it's interesting that we didn't, which is we could have said, mm -hmm. I actually don't want my life to be easier. I don't want um, the process of getting my thoughts into the world to become less frictionful. I actually want technology that helps me do better at communicating, develops my skill at being a person. <laughs> um, and th the word I might use for this is using technology as an instrument rather than a device, an instrument like a scientific instrument that has to have a lot of skill to be used, an instrument like a musical instrument that you have to actually learn how to play. But the whole way technology is sold is you don't really have to figure this thing out. It's so easy. Um, and if you say something to me that I, uh, if you share some good news with me in person, I have to come up with at least some creative way to express my shared enthusiasm. But Facebook gives me this incredibly easy way, which is just hit this little thumbs up button, hit a like button. And it's taken all that empathy, all that effort, all that learning of how to really be with you in your joy and just turned it into a like button. And by the same token, uh, there is no, I think they added a sad face button recently <laughs> so that when you share sad news, I can somehow express, but it thins everything out. So our culture making, it, to get back to your question, <laughs> sorry, I went on a little long. It's getting thinner and thinner because it's easier and easier, but easy doesn't form us. Easy doesn't change us or shape us. And in the end, our, we don't have that much to offer each other because we're not actually becoming someone different, uh, someone ideally better, more wise, more courageous, more mature, uh, because easy is never going to make you wiser, more courageous, more mature. Well, I want to get to what we, we then do about it. But before <laughs> that, um, Amy, I have to ask you about loneliness. Um, mm -hmm. I think I told you earlier that your chapter title, Scrolling Alone, I think is one of the uh, most clever chapter titles I've heard in quite a while. I can play off of, of Bob Putnam's book. But you make this sort of fascinating argument there about just the, the relationship between our virtual connection and sense of relational disconnection. Um, and also note that we have this strange tendency to we say um, that we want to spend more time with people than online. We want to spend more time outside than inside online. We wanna spend more time with our family than online. And yet we consistently choose to do what sabotages our deepest desires. I'd love just to get your thoughts on why is it that our technologies which promise to connect us often leave us more disconnected than ever? Yeah, 
Well, I think the short answer is really what dad just said, which comes back to easiness. Um, Real deep and fulfilling connection with people is not easy. And so if we turn all of our relationships into the kinds of, you know, very flattened, kind of reduced to a few pixels um, mode that especially social media demands, we're going to get easy and that is not going to be deep and fulfilling. So I would say that's the short answer. Um, I think maybe what I would add to it though is that I think the additional challenge with social media and communication technologies is that they can provide a really good illusion for a long time. Mm. You know, a relationship that's, you know, formed by text messages or the, the hundreds of people who will like your Instagram photos. For a certain time, that can feel real, right? That illusion can be very strong and maybe can be feel really fulfilling, can feel really like, oh, I have so many people who care about me. And I wonder if part of what is so difficult and makes us really so lonely on social media is that the more power that illusion has over us, the more incredibly painful it will be when it comes crashing down. Because I think, I think every one of us has had many moments in our lives when, you know, you just realize that all of the sort of acquaintances in your life who will, you know, like an Instagram photo or send you, you know, a text when they see that something nice has happened, they cannot support you through the, the deepest abysses really that you can fall into as a human being and you need something more. And so I almost wonder if we can see loneliness as being just a result of disillusionment and having, mm. you know, gained a little taste of what it would be like for hundreds of people to care desperately about you and support you, but then realize that all they did was double tap on a screen. Mm. <laughs> well, I have a feeling, oh, go ahead, Andy. Well. So the thing is, it's sold with you. Now you'll be able to, you'll be able to communicate yes. to all these people and you'll no longer have to, you know, send out Christmas cards at, at Christmas, you know, where you handwrite their names, just send them a broadcast update. But there are two other things that happens with technology is along with now you'll be able to is, is now you'll no longer be able to. There are things that actually get foreclosed out of the possibility of human experience. And then, and then there's also a kind of compulsion. You'll now have to. So it's not just that it relieves you of things you had to do. There's a new set of things you have to do. And I think um, that, that, that shift accounts for why uh, at the beginning, these technologies often seem quite liberating, but we look at their actual effects uh, mm -hmm. at the conscious level of what we can perceive about ourselves, but also at the kind of trend level of our, of our society and, and what seems to be happening to people's emotional lives, social lives, trust of one another. And we're not seeing the benefits th that we wanted or we imagined because they're actually foreclosing on some things that are very essential to living a full, rich human life in community. So I'm sure that most of our viewers are now thinking, well, what then do I do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do we live with technologized life? One of the things I thought was so interesting about your book is it really seems to be less a series of tactics or suggestions and more really um, an offer of liturgy of certain embodied habits yeah. and practices that, you know, essentially take one in a very different direction. And um, 
And I wanted to ask you both about particular ones that you mentioned, but you know, Andy, maybe we can start with you and you could just sort of uh, kind of talk about liturgy a little bit more broadly. But I also wanted to ask you about one small liturgy that you apparently practice every day, which is to always go outside before you turn on your phone, why you do that and why it matters. So this is a this is a recent thing in that it actually started while I was writing the book The Techwise Family and I was writing about these rhythms. I think uh, one of the most damaging things about many devices is they're always on character. We're not human beings aren't meant to live 24/7. We're not left, meant to be always on, uh, but our devices like to be always on. Um, so we have a bunch of suggestions in the book about you know bedtime and and uh, dinner time being times when we turn them off uh, and, and then you use them at other times of the day in a different way because you have this rhythm um well i was working on the book and noticing that my pattern had become now we we don't have phones and bedrooms in our home at all uh they all live in the kitchen at night or sleep in the kitchen <laughs> um so i would get up i'd go down i'd start making my tea in the morning which is uh which is one addiction i will not give up uh, <laughs> <laughs> it makes a lot of things possible in my life. Um, and what would I do? Well, naturally, I'd pick up the phone from its little charger and start scrolling through uh, notifications, through happy news, through outrageous news. And adrenaline would start to rise even before I'd actually, you know, finish steeping the tea. And I thought this, this cannot be the best way to start a day. Mm. And so what I started to do is uh, leave my phone blank and plugged in, unaware that I was up, finish making my tea and walk outside. Uh, I walk out my front door. We live in a, a home in just sort of ordinary Philadelphia uh, su suburb neighborhood. I walk outside and I just stand there uh, sometimes for 10 seconds. This morning it was raining. I was only outside for probably 10 seconds, 67 degrees. Uh, mm -hmm. Other days it's humid. Other days it's rigidly cold. Other, you know, And I just feel what it's like to be a creature, a little creature, because my phone makes me seem really big. Everything on that screen is selected to be important to me. I walk outside, the birds are doing their thing. I know what phase the moon is now. I did, there were years where I had no idea what phase the moon was. Um, and it is almost embarrassing how dramatic a spiritual difference this has made in my life, that I just begin my day intentionally, every day, wherever I am in the world, out, outdoors, even if it's just for a moment. Um, maybe I'll tell you one more thing about that, which is that for the first two weeks I tried this, you would not be believe, it's so embarrassing, how difficult it was to actually leave the phone untouched. It was like a spiritual battle to get out the front door <laughs> And I'm thinking, well, how much power does this thing have over me that I have this compulsion to reach for it? And uh, roughly two weeks into the practice, it was like a switch flipped. And whereas for the first two weeks, it had almost felt like this phone were whispering to me, don't you want to look at me? You need me. Don't you want to hear what I have to tell you? And I'd have to be like, no, no. <laughs> and, and two weeks in, it, I heard the little whisper, don't you want to check me? And instead of feeling attraction and compulsion, I just felt like revulsion and no way. Why would I start with you rather than starting as God's son out in the world? <laughs> and uh, I've never felt the temptation to check it then uh, again since. It's been years now that I've been doing this. Um, these little like 
liturgies of resistance actually change your relationship with the whole thing, uh, the rest of the day, the mm -hmm. rest of the week, the rest of the year. Wow. Yeah. Amy, you wrote about not a little, but a fairly large liturgy of resistance, Sabbath. Maybe you could say a bit about that. Yes, please. Well, I <laughs> think, so I like to say that I think the Sabbath is the greatest gift that maybe my family has ever given to me. Um, every, so every Sunday, um, when, since I can remember, and I assume, you know, when, when, as early as I was born, um, my family has taken off every single Sunday from work and also from kind of technological distraction and sort of mere scrolling alone, as we might say, um, a day of rest every single week. And that has not been perfect every single week, right? There are all sorts of ways that we, you know, we ended up having to do a little homework or, you know, but it was this core commitment of our family that every single week we would rest and we would live apart from screens for a day. And I am now in college, I'm a senior in college, and I still do this. And I actually even, I would say, became more strict with myself about keeping it when I left my family. Um, and so I, I think that a day of rest every week, both from our work and also from the technological world, um, can just completely transform us. First of all, when you take a day away from screens, you realize just how much you depend on them, right? Anytime that you are, anytime that you take away from some kind of influence like that, you realize, oh, my life has been completely oriented around my phone. And so every week you're getting a little reset where you realize, okay, I can live without this, but I have not been living without this. Um, but I think even more important than that is the amount of humility that the Sabbath gives you. Dad kind of mentioned this earlier, but the incredible thing about a day of rest is you are completely unable to depend upon your own strength and your own work. I, you know, I've had Sundays where the next day I had a final exam and I had to completely forget about trying to, you know, cram, trying to basically believe in my own brain being able to get me through that exam, you know, and so taking a day away from our work and also taking a day away from the screens, which as dad said, treat us as if we are the most important beings in the universe. Um, it just makes, it, it provides this beautiful gift of humility and this beautiful opportunity to remember, I am, as dad said, I am a creature. I do not need to depend on my own strength to get through the day or to realize my goals. Um, and I am a three-dimensional human being who lives outside of the world of pixels. So I would commend taking a Sabbath to absolutely everybody. It is not easy. It's not easy everywhere, but it is one of the most absolutely transformative disciplines I could have imagined. And I am, I am so grateful that it was, yeah, a gift that my family gave me. Thanks, Amy. 
lot there to unpack. So I know we have a lot of questions that are already lined up. So uh, one question which comes from Meredith Teal. Meredith asks, how do we strive for a virtuous technology while still remaining relevant in the technology mm -hmm. world so that we can relate to a younger generation? Amy, maybe we can start with you for that one. Yeah. Um, well, I would say, Dad mentioned earlier this distinction between instruments and devices. Um, and also we talked about this idea of technology being not neutral, but able to be used for good and bad. And so I would say that there are ways that we can use to remain, you know, quote unquote relevant. There are ways that we can use technology as an instrument. Um, we can, a, a way that um, can kind of be, an opportunity, a platform to share more thoughtfulness, more wisdom with the world, rather than leaning into its kind of worst inclinations of, you know, reduction. Um, and so I think that we don't need to say that uh, the virtuous way for technology, I don't think we need to say that it is no screens ever. But I do think that there's an opportunity to say, what if we treated devices and especially kind of the internet and social media as a, an instrument that could enable us to um, communicate about virtue and about living wisely? So our next question comes from Bruce Vait and Andy, I'll uh, toss this one your way. He asked, how should churches think about technology and particularly in regards to meeting arrangements? He said a tech-loving friend of his asked, can the church even afford in terms of reaching people to push back and not adopt technology? Hmm. Well, here's how I think about it. Um, I think technology is very good when you're trying to be productive. Um, so to the extent that you are in the business of scaling, of spreading, of distributing, um, that technology can be very helpful. Uh, but it is not very good at being formative, that is forming persons. So that to the extent that you're in the business, let's say, or the, the enterprise, of actually shaping how human beings live and, and uh, go through the world with one another and with God, um, I don't actually think easy everywhere is helpful at all in that. So are there elements of church that involve producing things, distributing things, getting the word out about things, uh, even communicating certain messages to people we might not have a direct relationship with, you know, kind of mass communication? Maybe that's part of your church's work and sure, use technology for that. But for the formative work, which I think is 90% of what a church needs to be about. Mm -hmm. um, and this is why I, 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 I put together home, church, and school, because home, church, and school are the most formative environments for most people. I think they each are good environments that we're meant to have, mm -hmm. uh, a family community, and a kind of induction into the culture that we're part of, that's education, and then an induction into the family and mission of God, that's the church. Um, these are meant to reshape us. And in these environments, you have to be extremely careful that you're not thinning out and flattening down the formation of persons. So, you know, using it in kind of ancillary ways for communication is okay, but, but that's not the main business of the church. So I would be wary uh, of, of introducing technology into environments where we're meant to be formed above all into the worship of God. Um, 
I, I have big questions about amplification. Uh, I know most of us go to churches that have sound systems and there are ways to use a sound system as an instrument, but my observation is middle-class Americans um, uh, from the dominant culture who are saturated in tech do not sing in church. I mean, to an amazing extent compared to Christians in the rest of the world today and Christians in the rest of history and singing together is one of the most powerful things. <laughs> um, but we've, we've lost that uh, in a lot of the American church. And then we got, got a little break from COVID, but what do we come back and decide to do together? I, I hope we'd decide to do something a little different. So an additional question comes from Sue Vernalis. And Sue asks, will you comment on the reality of this past year? Almost everything we did for work, school, and socializing was on the screen. How will that affect us, and especially the school-age generation? Andy, maybe we can start with you uh, with that one. Well. Honestly, unfortunately, it's it's had a, I think we see increasing evidence. It's been pretty bad um, and worst worst for adolescents. I would say I think small children uh, will bounce back. Uh, children are extremely extremely uh, flexible and and even terribly damaging things can be repaired. Adolescence is a super vulnerable time. I think it's been a very very difficult time, and not for every single kid, but for uh, majority. But we certainly are seeing indexes of adolescent mental health going in really, really disturbing directions. Um, so uh, it's time to begin the repair. And the repair comes with presence. The repair comes with personal connection. Uh, the repair comes from adults in kids' lives um, coming alongside them and really being with them. Don't be afraid that they don't care because they're digital natives or something or you're not relevant. They so want you in their lives. And that's not just your own relatives. It's mm. friends and neighbors and uh, kids on the team that your kid plays on or whatever. Like, let's not underestimate how much we need to repair um, the skills and the openness to personal connection. Amy, you might, yeah. I think you might have an important perspective on this too. Well, I would just add that the one glimmer of hope I see is that at least this past year, two years now, I guess, has revealed so much about a relationship with screens and with technology. I mean, I, I think that we have seen so clearly, as much as we've seen the good things that technology can help us to do, as Deb said, we've also witnessed how little it can replace what's most important to us. And so I think my, my, my little, little bit of hope would be that we, we, we could say, now is the time to make a change. We have seen what a year completely immersed in and mediated by the online world has done to us. And now we are going to move forward and make things look different. And, you know, I would, I would also say, I mean, I, a lot of people are sort of talking about, you know, going back to normal. And I would love to suggest, as many other people have, that maybe we should not be going back. What if we could be moving forward? We, I mean, as is the way that we were living in 2018, was that really the ideal way that we could have been using technology? I don't think so. And so I think that in moving forward to a, a new normal or a next normal, I think we should be thinking about how we can make tomorrow better um, and how this year can teach us about what technology really can do for us as well as what it can't. A number of questions about uh, a topic I know both of you have discussed, which is how do you use technology redemptively? So Abigail Zhang mm -hmm. asked you if you 
have examples of how you love to use technology redemptively? Do we understand the actual needs that are meant for information and solidarity in uh, uniquely right. isolating seasons? And yep. somewhat similarly, Yvonne Belenza uh, asked, what suggestions would you have for individuals for whom technology and social media in particular is an integral component of their work? Hmm. Amy, yeah. maybe we can start with you on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to. And well, I would say that when we use technology redemptively, I think I've noticed two patterns. Um, One would be when it's used as an opportunity to um, create and kind of, I guess, disseminate beauty. Um, I think of all of the people that I personally know um, who are musicians and artists and creators um, and, and countless others in the world who are really using the the world of technology as an opportunity to be creative and to create beautiful things that touch people's hearts deeply. And then I think the other word, I I loved the word that you used. I I think it was Abigail, um, solidarity. Um, And I would say when we use technology in a way that is other oriented, in a way that is not denying the self, but is looking beyond the self and is mm. seeking to truly connect and affirm with other people. Um, I think that can be really powerful. And, you know, I, I saw, I think it was in Abigail's question, um, mentioning, for instance, a, a, an online support group with health, uh, with, a, with a really difficult health crisis. And I would say that, you know, so much of social media is built on uh, sort of flattering the self Mm -hmm. and something like a health crisis support group is so completely the opposite. So deeply built on a mutual pouring into other people um, and also on an understanding that life is difficult and that you are not going to gloss over and share only the highlights, but that you want Mm -hmm. to be sharing um, the true challenges of life. Um, I think that is incredibly valuable. So those are two of the ideas I have, beauty and also this kind of honest, other loving community um, are ways in which the online world can truly be used redemptively, but many, many more, I hope. That's great. Andy, Amy, thank you so much. This has just been such a rich conversation. So as we close out our time together, Andy and Amy, I would love to give you the last word. So Andy, maybe we can start with you. Sure. Uh, look, life, life is hard. And when life is hard, uh, the temptation is to want it to be easier. And that's why we adopt so much tech because we're like, man, my life is so hard. If I could just make it a little easier in this area. I just want to invite you as I've let myself be invited in the course of my life to choose what's hard today that will lead not necessarily to things being easy tomorrow, but different and and joyful in a way that they will never be if we just choose easy everywhere today. Um, And every day I have choices about how I use the devices in my life, either to just make my life easier or to choose the hard thing that will actually form me into the kind of person who can live ideally, God willing, a true, beautiful and good life. And specifically for your parent, <laughs> one thing I like about My TechWise Life, which is really mostly Amy's book, 
is it gives you a little picture of if you do the hard thing today as a parent, and I guarantee you, if you try to make changes in your family about technology, it's going to be hard at first. It's going to be really hard. Um, however, we have existence proof in the form of my daughter that there is something really amazing on the other end of those hard choices we make as parents when the kids are smaller and when we're vulnerable and just trying to get through the day. Uh, there's something beautiful waiting for you in your family, in your friendships, um, in your church, in places that you want to be formed. Uh, it does require choosing something other than easy everywhere. I, I would just want to remind and affirm that you are a three-dimensional person. You live in the physical world. You experience the places that you live, the communities you're in with all of your senses. Um, and you are not a brain on a stick, as I think Jamie Smith likes to say. Um, and I think one of the most challenging things about being a person is that we are, we have these very frustrating and, and painful and not always working bodies. And we can't divorce our, ourselves from the very complicated reality of being a person in a three-dimensional body. Hmm. But I also think that we cannot find the true sort of joy and fulfillment of our callings without caring for our, our three-dimensional selves, without experiencing the world in an embodied, personal, physical way. And so I would just say, as we leave this year, which has in some ways made it so hard to be a physical human being in a body, um, be thinking about what it looks like for you to be this enfleshed person right now, how you can be caring for your heart, soul, mind, and strength, um, and how you can be looking outside and perceiving the world around us, which is also created three dimensions, mysteriously and astonishingly physical. Amy, Andy, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening. We'd love for you to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations on your favorite podcast platform and to share this episode with a friend. More information on today's programs and show notes are available at ttf.org. Until next time, we wish you the gift of great conversations.